Hi there and welcome back to the ESPN Footy Podcast. G'day everybody, welcome to the ESPN Footy Podcast once again. My name is Matt Walsh, I'm joined by Jake Michaels and Christian Jolly from Champion Data and we're here to talk you through another week of footy. And if you've made it this far in the podcast, Jake, you've been listening for as long as Collingwood led their match against Adelaide. (laughs) I didn't think you were going to use that. Hey, Carlton, we're back. We're back. And I'm saying we because we are back. 100-point win. Christian, are you a believer again? We don't get to play West Coast every week, Jake. We do play them again later in the year, though. (laughs) Uh, Lots of we's in this podcast. There is a heap to get to today. We talk the grand final curse. We had uh, two one-point wins and a hundred and a one-hundred-point win. Let me get that out. Mm. Uh, there's a new CEO on the horizon, and we've got some draft chat with columnist Jasper Chelapa coming up as well. Speaking of Jake, was in the power rooms on Friday night. The consensus number one was in there, Harley Reid, seventeen-year-old, mm. could have fooled me. Looks like he's twenty-six and ready to go. Like what you see. Well, you know, he was just in the rooms in his track gear, but uh, absolutely. He and uh, Zane Dersma, brother of uh, Xavier, who got injured, yep. uh, were both in the rooms and they were having a chat to some of the power boys. So why don't we just sort of let that uh, emanate and uh, maybe ports on the horizon to take Harley Reid with uh, the number one pick somehow. Who knows? But before we get cracking today, something from the weekend you noticed, Jake. I, I can't be the only person that noticed this or thought it was a bit odd. So Tom Hawkins kicked eight goals, right? That's a career high for him. I, I I was staggered that eight was his career high. I know eight goals is not nothing to, you know, that's a that's a fair effort, and it's you know. But the, then I looked at his stats and what his best was before. So it was seven, obviously, but he'd only done that four times. So in his three hundred and thirty-four games, he's only kicked more than six. Sorry, three sevens and an eight. So he's only kicked more than six four times. I just I would. Couldn't believe that. I would have thought he would have done that about 15 times. Especially when you compare him to a lot of the other great key forwards of this era. Buddy, uh, Jack Rewalt, uh, Nick. Nick Rewalt. going back. Well, Fev going back a bit. Josh Kennedy. Um, Jared Roughhead. Some of these guys that it's like, they would have done it a lot more than that. I don't know. Just felt a bit light. Hawkins does seem to kick, a kick lot of bags fours. of fours and maybe fives. Yeah. Which is obviously valuable for the team, but... Yeah, you're right. Maybe not a not a standout sort of eight goal contributor. I wonder when was the last time someone kicked a career high as a forward? Someone kicked a career high in their 330. Well, that's what I was game. saying yesterday. Yeah, this is this is this has to be a thing that can't have happened before. You can't a player that late in their career kicking a career high of that high. Like maybe I think you said yourself, it was a defender finally getting the two goals in a game or something, <laughs> but. That, yeah, fair play to him. And, I mean, go rewind a month and everyone was saying he's cooked and he's just gone and kicked his... Yeah, had a slow start to the season, didn't he? So, all of a sudden, the the Hawkins Cameron... Hawkins Cameron or Harry Charlie? That's the question. I think it's still Hawkins Cameron. Yeah, I don't think you can trust Mackay in front of the big sticks as much at the moment. Good, very good mark at the moment. Mm. Pushes up the ground, Mackay. But, yeah, in terms of the finishing, I'm taking the Cats duo. That's for sure. Christian, something from the weekend that took your fancy. Uh, just a probably a small one that I've spoken about before on the podcast, um, and it actually it got blown up a little bit post match. I think from one of Ross Lyons' uh, observations of the game, but the Charlie Dixon smother uh, on Josh Battle at the end mm. of that game, where again it came out after the game that it was a bit uh, controversial that Josh Battle got called to play on. But watching the vision from home, what happened was Charlie Dixon gave away a free kick, 
uh, or, or didn't sorry didn't get paid the free kick battle took the mark so t- Dixon sort of turned around to barrel the umpire realised I can't say a word here as, I, as I've been big on the on the podcast no point saying any words to the umpire it's mm. never had any good effect so he couldn't say anything to the umpire so he just stared at him him staring at him allowed him to see allowed him to see that he was going to call play on as soon as he did therefore he was the quickest off the mark smothered the ball pork got the basically the ceiling goal so it was just a sort of I thought it was sort of a good sort of uh, education tool of why you don't speak to the umpire. Yes, he sort of looked at him in a dirty manner. He was, he was very frustrated, but he kept his emotions in check and just stared at the umpire. That actually gave him the advantage to sort of get onto the play on quicker. I just thought that was actually a, yeah. a, a, a game-winning emotion check, if that makes sense. Thought he was going to blow a Did you get a stat for that? that point? Well, you don't. You got, you got a stat for the smother and everything else, but you don't get one for not swearing. <laughs> uh, well, I've now got two because I'm going to get one on oh, the back Oh, here that. we go again. Um, <laughs> no, but I did say at the top two one-point results, and it just got me thinking about uh, on this podcast maybe two or three years ago, we, we were asked what the most like common result mm. in AFL-VFL football is, and it's a one-point result. Is, it is the one. So yeah. there you go. The fact that it does happen and... Like, because they're quite notable, so you kind of remember them. Mm. Um, but yeah, the fact that it's actually like the 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 most mar- like the one wow. point win or loss has been the the, like the most common margin. Well, uh, on the flip side of that, the Saturday night sitting there watching the Carlton West Coast game and the other score in the corner, Melbourne North Melbourne, almost mirroring each for other. the for the whole last quarter. I was just praying that they would match so I could take a photo and that would be my something I noticed. But they didn't. They were one point <laughs> off about five times, and that was with an 80, 90 point margin. Uh, the second point was just on on the back of that actual contest. So Ross in his press conference was a little bit miffed, bemused about, and I've noticed this as well. It's just it's not something that's been big enough for this little segment. But now that some, like a coach has mentioned it, players that get called to play on when they like just look like they're they're on their line, yeah, and they they just sort of look inboard or they look outboard, and the the, the the umpire goes play on and yeah. hasn't given them their seven seconds. That's I that's been a lot more noticeable Especially, this season. Especially, and it's. A sp- it's no good, especially when they haven't taken their four, five, six steps back from the man on the mark. So as soon as they so they can get tackled instantly, and then it's holding the ball. So or even yeah, they kind of feign to to go inside, but they don't actually move their feet, and they call play on. I think the AFL, I think the umpire's got to get a bit better with that. Yeah, I know that they sort of tweaked the the stand rule to be like you can't like you know feign someone not, not out so to much do feign that. a handle, but, but it's sort of sort of open your body to look without actually taking a step off your line. Um. Yeah, it can't be played. But then the other side of it is sometimes when you know when they're taking the shot and they do arc out and they wait and they wait ages for them to call play on. So it's like I think we've got to find a balance somewhere in the middle because I think it's it's supposed to be seven seconds or something like that. Correct me if I'm wrong. If you've taken a mark in the field, you can sort Six of take or seven. Well, something like yeah. That. And then the umpire should say move it on before he plays. So you, you do yeah, hear yeah. the warning before the play on. So there was clearly no warning for that one mm. there. I'm so that kind of reminded me of that battle situation where he kind of looked, but I wouldn't say he played on. If that makes sense. Well, go uh, console Ross. Yeah, well, there we go. Uh, let's move into the main body of the podcast today. We have a new AFL CEO. Well, we will have a new AFL CEO. Oh, well, I, f- I think we've Come got October. a... Re- I think our podcast must put a press release out and congratulate him because everyone else in the football world was congratulating uh, Andrew Dillon yesterday. What, um, are you, what are you saying? Huh? What are you, what are you accusing? I just thought it was a bit strange. I've never seen that before. Have you? What clubs having media releases congratulating clubs, the players' association, everything that any AFL body was congratulating. I've never seen that for anything else. What are you implying? I'm not implying anything. I'm just wondering why it happened. Did I, brown nosing. I was, I was a little bit the same because one of the the very first press release I got from one of the clubs said Club X 
has congratulated Andrew Dillon. That was their opening line. I thought. Yeah. So your press release is just telling us that you've communicated yeah. something to somebody else. It was. It's, it's very it's, weird, but it, it must be a need that every club needed to send one out. But why? I mean, if maybe because. Once one club did it, and then two, three, four, and then once it got to kind of half the clubs, like, well, if we don't now, we're going to look a bit. But it felt like a bit, bit brown nosy. <laughs> I don't get it. I don't understand why everyone had to. It's not like when a team wins, you know, when Geelong win the grand final, and clubs don't put out a press saying, "Oh, we want to congratulate Geelong on winning the premiership." This, like, I've never seen that for anything. The, the, the cynic in me did notice it was the two expansion clubs that may have sent the quickest emails through as well. Oh. <laughs> There's a lot of implying Can't say going I on. I noticed that, but yeah. Um, Implications being thrown everywhere. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. So, Andrew Dillon, it is. Yeah, but um, in all seriousness, yeah. Uh, we, we've known for almost a year exactly that uh, Gill was departing, mm-hmm. um, and it has. It's taken taken 12 months to find his replacement. Um, yeah, well, everything was kind of shunted down, the, you know, with, with Tasmania on the horizon, um, AFL women's trying to get that, like, fully up and running. So, Gil had a lot on his plate. So, it kind of makes sense, I guess, that his tenure was extended. And he's still he's still in the in the hot seat until the October. end of the year. So, he'll be reading out the, uh, the Brownlow votes, will he, Jake? For the final time, I imagine, yeah. We were discussing before that you were... There's, we need to, he needs to find a way to... You want uh, him to flip the name and the initial round to go Dacos N. N. <laughs> Dacos J. Yeah, they just for Collingwood not games. A lot of, not a lot of other great Collingwood players that have their first name starting with N at the moment. Yeah, not many. That's fair. Uh, but yes, so at the end of the year, then there'll be a, a handing over. But if you think about what's happened in the last sort of 12, 18, 24 months, so AFLW has, has expanded to all 18 teams. Um, the back end of COVID, Gill's sort of you know negotiated the the, mm. the, the waters pretty well through that. Yeah. Um, the broadcast deal has been brought to the table, and Tasmania, depending on when you listen to this, may well have been announced. So there's a lot that's sort of been happening in the last 12, 18 months, and will happen over the next six months. So Dylan will come in at a time when AFL has undergone the AFL, is, as in the organisation, has undergone a lot of growth. Yep. So what's his biggest challenge? Do you think once once he hits the top job? I think his biggest challenge is now that we're at that point with the two, and I hate using the word, but expansion clubs, um, because I don't really feel like they are expansion anymore, having been around for over a decade. But I think over the next five years, there's going to be real pressure on to, to see how these clubs are faring and whether or not it's worth persisting with. And I think the AFL will, but there will be growing pressure to see what we do with those two clubs in those two markets. And I think that will be his biggest challenge. Why do you say that? Because for all intents and purposes, I know that you know the Suns haven't played finals, but you know the Giants. The Suns have not four the, years removed from the, a grand final. The Suns haven't just the, the not Giants played. Right? A, Did I say no? No, the Suns haven't not just not played a final. They haven't played on a Friday night. They haven't sniffed a final. They've never had a winning season. We've spoken about this before. So there is pressure on, and and it's we we keep saying it. It's not year four or five or six. It's year thirteen now. So if Andrew Dillon's in the, in this role for five, six years. It's going to be approaching 20 years this club's been in operation. And if it's still in that same position, there's going to be massive pressure on whether this club continues. And I don't think it's that dissimilar with the Giants as well. Despite the fact they played a grand final four years ago. Uh, my, see, my initial thought was the AFL needs a CEO just to consolidate now. Like I said, a lot of growth, a lot of areas of focus. You know, Tassie will be probably within his um, tenure be be coming in. I think it's just important for the AFL not to do anything silly. Continue on the path that it is. Crowds are good. 
you know, TV numbers are, are pretty good. good. You, you were criticising the crowds over the weekend. Uh, by and large, they've been pretty good. There've been a, there are a couple of poor crowds on the weekend. We might actually get to some of those a bit later. Uh, but but by and large, pretty good. Um, I think the AFL's in a pretty in good, a good place spot. For, for the most part. The but, worst thing he can do is come yeah. in and blow the joint up. You know, Not that he's obviously going to want to do that. Well, that's but what the, I was going to say. He's sort of, he's, he is in a bit of a position that it would be hard. You're talking about he's just got to consolidate the things. But as you're saying, AFLW will be in year eight, eight. or nine yeah. or ten. So Gillen's had that honeymoon period with the expansion clubs with the AFLW where it's got them off the ground and it's great and it's sort of like we yeah. give them more license because they're new. Andrew Gillen's really going to be probably in charge during that period of, all right, how do now, we continue that how growth? do we make them better? How do we make sure the AFLW mm. doesn't drop off from being just the new novelty sport? And that's sport? why sure he Gold faces Coast, a lot of GWS, pressure. Yeah. It's exactly, yeah. So I, you sort of say make this job sound easy, but it's almost harder because Gill has set up all these good things. It's like mm. Andrew Dillon's now got to make sure these things not only stay because yeah. he won't stable, get credit get, get for better. Yeah. starting it, but he'll be criticised if things start to tail off. Yeah, absolutely. Fair enough. Uh, one to watch over the next couple of months as things draw nearer towards the end of the season. Uh, the one telling stat from every team for the week, Christian, we do this with you every week where we sort of go through every game, look at the one or two stats that sort of really jumped out at you and, and was either a catalyst for a team winning, losing, you know, a standout performance and stuff like that. So uh, Friday night, St Kilda and Port Adelaide, a shock Loss for the Saints, Jake? Yeah, somewhat. I think considering how they've been going. But Port... Port's just, they'd won three in a row going into that game. Four now. And they just... They're a team that we were just saying before we started recording. They're a team that you're never quite sure what you're going to get. But they they bring their best. They can beat anyone. They've proven that over the last few seasons. Jason Horn Francis, probably the best claim... Well, the best... Game he's played for the club had uh, nine round, clearances to half time. Yeah, he did have a lot of. He had a lot of the ball, had a lot of clearances. Really inspired the fight back in that. Didn't use turn. it as well as he probably would have liked, but um, yeah, he was. He was the catalyst. They had a lot of contributors as well. Thought Dixon was good. Yeah, slow um, start for Dixon, but worked into the game. Yeah, uh, Christian, where yeah, do you want to go with this? Again, I think it was like a really good coaching masterclass, and it was again. You can only coach so much. You need the players to actually apply that, but. We saw from, you know, we spoke about Carlton's issues against St. Kilda and a few other teams just getting caught, holding the ball too much, kicking it around, taking marks and not doing much with it. Uh, Port Adelaide took just 78 marks, had 350 disposals, which is the second fewest against St. Kilda this year, and just 49 inside 50. So usually you're aiming for about 50 inside 50s to give your chance itself to win a game. Uh, They've won it with 49 inside 50. So yeah, kept the ball moving, kept it in dangerous positions. But then on the other side of the ball, their second highest pressure factor for any game this season. They had a tackle efficiency of 74%. Um, and with over 100 tackle attempts, that's one of the best sort of, you know, strongest tackling performances we've seen. Yeah. So they were just the, the application, the ability to stick to their guns. Don't get caught chipping the ball around doing nothing. And when St. Kilda get the ball, we need to pressure him. So it was St. Kilda's lowest ball to ball D50 to inside 50 ball movement for the year. So Port sort of stifled their ball movement, but just, yeah, made it hard for him to play. Yeah, very good. Uh, see, we talked about this uh, again a couple of weeks ago. St Kilda, now the, you know, another loss for the season, but they the similar patterns to what we saw last year from this club. So started strongly, started brightly with a lot of wins. We're nine and three before the, the sort of... Yeah, I, I'm not reading too much into this for the same. Fitness bosses left. Yeah, I'm not reading too much into it. I, I think they've been... They've shown in the first almost third of the season that they are as good as any. They've played really well. They've had a game style that's held up against everybody and the two losses they've had have been narrow. They haven't been blown out at any point. They've looked comfortable. 
I, I'm I'm not selling any St Kilda stock right and now. And just a quick stat on them: the one thing that still makes them hard to play against is they. So they outscored Port from turnover. So they, St Kilda keep winning the turnover scoring games. So that that's a big part of football and a big part of winning premierships. But they were beaten by 16 points from clearances, and that's where most of the opposition's getting their score from. So we know St Kilda's got the setup that you know if it becomes a turnover game, the ball flying around, they're, they're holding their nerve pretty well down back. But get them out of a clearance and try to get it out of a stoppage really, really fast. That's the way to score against the Saints. Uh, the Lions were also very good from clearance against Fremantle. Fremantle just continue to sort of disappoint a bit, Jake. They look like they might have been coming back into that match in the third term, but just couldn't quite get a get a run on and, and challenge Brisbane. Just they were very hard to beat at the Gabba, to be fair. Along. Lockie Neal, great. 13 clearances on his own. Um, but yes, the Lions, dominant from clearances and then obviously scoring from clearances and around the contest. Yeah, so it was a bit of a yin and yang between these two teams even coming into the game. Brisbane, one of the most inside uh, teams, so they, they win all their possessions from a contest. Pr- uh, rank, actually rank 18th for uncontested possessions per game, so lower than uh, North Melbourne and Hawthorne and that, and actually just trying to get handball receives and easy marks. So... They're a highly contested team, um, and Brisbane's been the number one scoring team for the last two years. Frio, very uncontested, and they've been their matches have been the lowest scoring matches across the last two years. So coming in the game, very different game styles. And it was, it was Brisbane on the inside. They won the clearances 46 to 28, outscored Frio 65 to 20 from the clearances. Um, and they were plus 21 for contested possessions for the round. So smashed them on the inside, as you expect. Frio, they were able to get the ball on the outside. They had the most handballs for the round. But again, we speak about GWS, Richmond, Collingwood. They really take ground with their mm. handballs. Um, so there were most handballs, but only eighth for metres gained from handballs. So basically handballing around in circles and going nowhere with it. Um, and as I said, they dominated the uncontested possessions, but they sort of averaged 13.8 metres gained per disposal, which was ranked 17th for the round. And actually finished with more handballs than kicks. So it's the only the second time in two seasons that a team's actually finished the game with more handballs than kicks. So for me, yeah, Freo got their hands on the ball a lot, but just did nothing with it. Sums them up at the moment. Uh, Swans and the Giants. I did text you about uh, this, and this was going to be my something I noticed, Christian, is that the Swans Three were of them. first to 100, but lost the game. I mean, growing up, that was always my old man's. Like, oh, if you're first to 100, you're going to win the game. <laughs> uh, it's just sort of, well, it, that, that sort of stat gets yeah. skewed by the fact that you might be on 99, kick it behind, and you're, the opposition's on 70. So, you know, you're obviously going to win those matches where you're well up already. But yeah, yeah. it is rare for a side to kick 100 first and end up losing the match, which is what the Swans did. Yeah, so we saw it happen twice last year, um, but you had to go back to 2017 to sort of have it happen before then. So, yeah, since so 2018 onwards, it's only happened three times where the team that scored 100 hasn't won, and that's out of 399 games where a team scored at least 100 first, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So 399 times they've got their first. Uh, only three of them have lost. Um, obviously, on the weekend, it was this one. Richmond Brisbane in the qualify uh, the elimination final last year. That was a ripper. Was well, hobby. that just kept going back and forth. Yeah, so again, it all came down to the wire and the and the Tom Lynch um, score review. And four or five weeks earlier, Melbourne played Bulldogs at the MCG. Mm. Similar, I think Melbourne I got to a hundred points. Yeah. So about it was a hundred to ninety seven when they got to a hundred. But I think the Bulldogs kicked the final. Oh, at Marvel when Hugo Hagen kicked the goal. Oh, was that at Marvel? Yeah, Sorry, yeah, yeah. No, you're right. Um, the other thing I noticed from that game is, and this was the same when the Swans lost very very narrowly to Port Adelaide at the SCG, won the inside fifty count comfortably and just couldn't convert yeah so plus 15 inside 50s um and again so we go to to the expected scores they were uh they were expected to win that game by 17 points so they did sort of have you know a three goal advantage sort of on their shots at goal and their inside 50s but 
Um, yeah, down the other end, accuracy for GWS. We talk about how underrated it was. I think they kicked five behinds for the game. Mm. Starts to make you think, oh, were they getting easy shots? Were they just waltzing in? I mean, they were nine straight from set shots. There were nine goals, one from outside 40. So even, the, you know, the Toby Green one might have been just within 40, the actual match winner. But they were kicking them from everywhere, whereas the Swans were just squandering opportunities. Did uh, Himmelberg get a hand pass away? He definitely handballed. It was whether he was... He, he sort of dropped it first, got dispossessed, and was able to get it back. And yeah. Oh, well, yeah, it was, it's a handball these <laughs> days. But, uh, yeah, that was another one that sort of, I think, reason you sort of talk about him. I sort of, yeah, jotted down that he took the big mark and kicked the winning goal um, yeah. a few weeks ago against Hawthorne, got his hands to the ball, touched on the line, fed out the handball for Toby Green. So for all the... Uh, the uh, sort of clutch moments for GWS this year, Harry Himmelberg's been a constant. Yeah. Putting in a good body of work in a contract year, as they say in the States. Well, yeah, I mean, look go, look back to last week. He was the, the star of the show. Um, yeah, I think there'd be a lot of clubs interested in him. A utility. Uh, he is, he's the perfect utility, isn't he? Dogs and Hawthorne. Mitch Lewis returned. Looked like he was about to tear the game apart, taking everything. I think he had nine marks to halftime. Uh, a few of those contested. Just couldn't kick accurately. Mm. Uh, and that was a bit of a... It kind of didn't help the Hawks because I think the Dogs were always going to finish strong and they just uh, ran away with it a bit in the, in the end. Yeah, so it was a good return for Mitch Lewis. I mean, probably first game back from eight months, nine months out. So obviously uh, didn't run out the whole game. But yeah, sort of started early, four early touches, some good early marks. But it sort of shows what, you know, what their future of Hawthorne's forward line looks like. But across that game, the surprising thing for me was Hawthorne spoken about what Sam Mitch was trying to bring in, bring in offense, bring in sexy ball movement and things like that. They actually, and, and we spoke about how good the Bulldogs are at contested possessions, ground balls. Hawks won ground balls, clearances, contested possessions. So actually got down and dirty and sort of got inside and got more of the ball, in, uh, got to the, got their hands on the ball first. So that's probably one of the ticks for me for Hawthorne in terms of, yeah, he didn't win the game, but there's probably a lot of things they want to introduce into their game as they as they go forward. Um, so we know they, they're pretty good at moving the ball. There was a pretty good contested so possession in ground ball. with what you've seen from the Well, Hawks. again, just just being able to sort of, you know, again, if you're playing against the Bulldogs, that's one area of the game that you know that you're going to have to be focused on and they were mm. and they won that area. So just, yeah, just little wins for a team that's just trying to uh, um, rebuild, if you like. They were the best of the three worst teams. Let's just put it that way. Uh, interesting one was the coaches' votes for this match. So eight players yeah. appeared in this. Will Day, five. Caleb Daniel, five. So... The coaches saw that. So one of them, they've one of the coaches given one five, and one, the other one's given the other one five. And they've and given the opposite given, none, and yeah. the opposite none. So yeah. Will Day has been given five votes by one and zero by the other. Yeah. Caleb Daniel has been given five votes by one and zero by the other. Bailey Williams got four votes from one and zero from the other. John Newcomb got four votes from one and zero from the other. And then Ed Richards, Aaron Norton, Blake Hardwick, and Ned Reeves all had three. So you can sort of throw a blanket on who yeah. gave each one of them. Isn't that one of the most amazing spreads of coaches votes? Oh, it's weird. Seen? There was a game last year where it was there were ten players. It was five five four four three three two two one was one. That actually? It, yeah, that... there was. And it was like how can how can you I know, I mean I do Brownlow votes every week, every game, as you know, and it's, sometimes it's hard, but how can you have two people, let alone the fact they're coaches, watching the game and just come up with Five, a totally different list of five. Probably focusing on their own side more as well. Maybe that's it. I, I would just love to know who voted for who in this one. Whether you're giving the opposition player credit or whether you're backing your own team. That's that's something yeah, that's interesting, interesting to me. Uh, Melbourne and North Melbourne at the MCG prime time Saturday night. Classic game. Twenty nine thousand people turned up. Two Here we Victorian go. Here's, clubs. Here's your uh, here's your crowd, crowd crusade. Whack. Yeah, that's is that's not good enough, is it? Um. 
Premiership contender? Not really, no. Mm. Anyway. What should it be? 40-ish? That's a 40,000 crowd, I think, mm. for mine. That's a... When's the last time North Melbourne played at night on a Friday or Saturday night? Well, at the MCG, 10 years ago. Yeah. That's what I think that was a like Sir Swamp Thing tweet. Well, there you go. I, 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 Yeah, I mean, just don't remember them playing at night often. <laughs> they were the ones that... They were the pioneers of night footy. <laughs> they were. Uh, but North, strangely, actually, the uh, older team. Yeah, just that... Caught me by surprise. So they were older by age, um, half a year older across the across the board, and only two games fewer games average. Um, so Melbourne actually had more sort of games experience hmm. across the thing, but it wasn't a young North team getting sort of shown up on the night. It was yeah, actually they still got a lot of um, experience in that side, and as I said, yeah, to come up older than to come up older than Melbourne. And, lose by that much was yeah quite not surprising that they lost by that much but surprising that they are actually as old as they are uh blues very good on saturday night against the eagles gotta drag charlie kerno to 10 goals you don't take him off with five minutes to go do you jake the fact they took him off wasn't the worst part of it i thought the fact they were just chipping around in the back line with like six minutes to go just i don't know how it works do they take him off isn't it just a it's scheduled move. I don't think a runner ever runs out to someone and drags blokes in anymore. No, so I, don't, I, reckon, I don't think Carl. Turn him say around. Say, kick your tenth. Yeah. Anyway, uh, from from the Blues, I actually had some really great numbers. Yeah. So the underrated one. Yeah. No, it's uh, their biggest win for ten odd years. I think it's their second biggest ever win interstate. Um, second biggest behind when they beat Gold Coast in 2011. But to me, 80 tackles probably was glossed over a little bit. So that's their second most tackles they've applied. Uh, under Michael Voss, um, and the most this most they've obviously had this season. They had 47 against the Saints last week, so no, we, they dominated disposals and, and contested possessions and things like that. But the tackle part of the game um, hasn't been one of their strength. They've been more ball focused, so I think that was one big part of the game for me. We talk about how well they scored and things like that, but yeah, just their defensive application to have 80 tackles. Well, nearly double what they had the week previously. Yeah, and it's very rare for a team to have 80 tackles and 130 points. So I think they're the, fir- they're the first team to do that in three years to actually finish with at least 80 tackles and 130 so, points in a game. They had 83 and 150 so the, points. So the four sort of midfield you know, guys of the Blues, I guess, Walsh, Chera, Cripps, Hewitt, they combined for 34 tackles. Yeah, that's impressive. That's and we Considering know, you've got more of the ball as well. And I've spoken about their, since the start of last year, they're the second best contested ball differential team behind Melbourne. So only Melbourne's better at actually getting their hands to the ball first. But it is, it's been able to go, all right, if we don't win that first contested possession, though, we need to be ready to tackle because they're a very inside-orientated game style, Carlton. Mm. Remind me later, I've got a uh, justified hype or hyperbole statement for you on the Eagles, <laughs> but I haven't written it down. So we'll, we'll come back to that. Uh, who else played? Uh, Essen and Geelong. So the country game. What is it the with country the country game of the MCG? With, yeah, we've talked about that before. What is it with Essendon having slow starts against the Cats? Three of their last four, they've they've was it been down by at least thirty last, points. It round was. one last year, and I yeah, and they would. I remember looking at the score, and they felt like they were by ten goals. Happened again, and Tom Hawkins, as you said, off the top, uh, mm. eight goals a career best. Uh, Cats and Bombers, Christian. Yeah, I was working. Um, I was actually on doing a lacrosse game and the Gold Coast game either side of this one, but I was just watching the score go up going, it's a country football game. So basically it ended up being, it was the highest scoring game this season. It looked so like a country football the, game. The score. aggregate score, um, <laughs> so merging the two, it was yeah, the highest scoring game this season. But actually Geelong's been involved in three of the top four highest scoring games this season. So hmm. um, something very different to what they've done say, previous four they've... or five years, built around defence. They've, yeah. they've always been able to score quite well, but they don't have big... Uh, 
end-to-end scoring games. But yeah, that's the, that's the third time this year that Jordan Long's got sort of sucked into a shootout a little bit. Uh, well, their last four weeks, uh, off the top of my head, something like 136, 135, 127, and 130 mm. points or something yeah, like oh, that. Yeah, they're having no trouble scoring. That's no sure. trouble scoring. What, you know what they need to do at this game? After the goal, when they do like the flashing lights or whatever they try and do, is they need to have like car horns. Like at the country footy. Get out of here. No? <laughs> nah. Fair enough. Uh, the Dons, yeah, really struggled though. Um, 47 inside 50s, fourth fewest of the round, and just couldn't actually score per entry. They Despite did, the fact no, that they still had... No, they were able to score, so that's the thing. And that's been big on Essendon all year. Goals. It's it's their It's their cashing in. So a lot of their quantity stats are low. They're not getting a lot of forward half intercepts. They're not winning time in forward half. They're not getting a lot of entries. But they seem to be able to score whatever they do. So again, it's holding him in good stead at the moment, but... To going forward and to sort of have some success in finals, I think they need to, to increase some of their inside 50 count, some of their time in forward half dominance, if that's going to sort of make it more sustainable for them. Uh, Suns and Tigers, Marble Stadium, another poor crowd. 23,000. We knew this was going to happen though, didn't we? Well, uh, yes, but I still would have thought it'd be a little bit more than that. Yeah, very disappointing. They don't like travelling across the city. Travelling. Yeah. <laughs> the two and a half kilometres. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, how about that stat about since Dimmer said that he doesn't like playing there, they've like they lost five and yeah, drawn five one. losses and one draw since he said that. So they're four wins and eight losses um, across the last three or four years at Marvel. But yeah, they've sort of no wins in their last six games here uh, since they sort of yeah highlighted the fact they don't like playing there. Are the Suns papering over cracks? Um, again, it was for Gold Coast in that one game. They sort of again flipped Richmond's weakness on and, and made it Gold Coast strength so Richmond have really struggled forward to centre they haven't had clean inside 50 entries and struggling to score so Gold Coast I mean Will Powell Charlie Ballard 10 intercept possessions each just just kept sort of stopping the ball at half back and Gold Coast only conceded a score from 34% of the inside 50s they conceded which is their best result um, this season and their, their third best result since the start of last season so their defence really stood up and I thought that's again watching Ballard and Powell I thought that they got a lot of their uh, sort of the setup of their win of the game came from those two down back. But the big thing for Richmond is across their premiership dominance, what they were able to do is score from forward half turnover. So we know they didn't always win disposals. They had less of the ball than the opposition. But what they were able to do is they were able to get the ball into their forward line. Opposition wins it back but can't get it back halfway before Richmond sort of turns the ball over and scores. Uh, Richmond scored just eight points from forward half intercepts across the game, which is the second fewest by any team this year. Um, and if you just look at H- Richmond's ranking in that stat, they're 18th for points from forward half intercepts this year. If you go back year by year, they were first, second, first, second, first, third across their dominance. So that has been the biggest sort of drop off of their game in terms of their ability to sort of lock the ball up forward and score from from those turnovers. Some people thought that I'd gone a little early. Obviously, I was on the Tigers to win the premiership, and when I we kind of got to round four, I said no, they they can't. Um, might, some people thought that was going a little bit early, but now we're heading into round eight, still with the one win. Can they make finals? Can they turn this around? Oh, I think they could make finals, but I can't see them doing much damage even if they got there. Mm. Tigers, one to watch. Uh, and one of the games of the round, Adelaide and Collingwood at Adelaide Oval, was the late game on a Sunday. A bit, a bit hidden, but uh, thankfully it was a good finish. Um Crows probably missed some of the easiest set shots in particular. They'll be kicking himself. Yeah. So both both one point results on the weekend. The opposite team won according to expected scores. So Giants got up by one point over Sydney. It should have been an eighteen point win for Sydney. Um, and the Crows should have won by fifteen points based on expected scores against Collingwood, who actually got up. But 
simple one from that game is, yeah, it was it was two parts of the game. Adelaide were plus 24 points from scoring from turnovers across the game. Um, so won that area of the game. Collingwood was plus 26 from clearances um, across the game. So won that. So Collingwood are doing quite well without a recognised Ruckman. Um, I think ever since that uh, Darcy Cameron's been out of the team, they've they've won the scores from clearances in each of those games since. Um, but yeah, it's the turnover okay. game where Adelaide was sort of strong in. As we said off the top, we've got a very special guest in for the podcast today. You can read his work on the website at espn.com.au forward slash AFL. Jasper Chalapa is his name, and he's our draft guru. Firstly, welcome to the ESPN Footy Podcast for the first time. I've got to say, it's probably not the most glamorous studio you've been in. <laughs> well, yeah, Triple M's quite nice. Um, but, yeah, Maddie, Jake, thank you for the very warm welcome. It's been beautiful to come in today. It's been wonderful having you on board this season uh, with uh, a lot of content. As I said, you can read it on the website. Uh, and one of the things you do for us every month is a monthly power rankings, uh, basically looking a very at... Good read, very good read. Very good read. On the website right now, I believe, uh, depending on when you listen to this. So yeah. do check that out. Uh, but basically, we look at the sort of the top 20 prospects that are coming up for, for the draft year. And I think... I, this is one of the first draft seasons for a long time where I've kind of known for 12 months who this number one is going to be and everyone just keeps talking about one name and it's Harley Reid. Yeah, it was the best bottom edge draft campaign I've ever seen and I think a few of the draft gurus around would agree. He's, he's the quintessential kind of goal-kicking midfielder that Dustin Martin and Christian Petrarca mould. Um, Not bad. He's, he's a, yeah, it's, it's a good comparison <laughs> and I think it's well-deserved after watching him for 12 months last year and then his opening month and a bit this year, he's, um, he's you know, delivered on all expectations. So I've I've watched a, a lot. Go on. Yeah, I just have a question about Harley Reid. So I don't think a lot of people quite understand how it all works. So he was playing seconds for the Blues on the weekend, right? Yep. He was so why, how does that happen and, and how does he get that gig? Yeah, so he's, he's been playing for the Pioneers... Um, to start the year, he played three games for them, averaged 22 touches and a goal, um, and then played the AFL Academy game two weeks ago, was best on there. He's too good for the talent league competition, the Coast Talent League, um, and it's it's going to be interesting to see a couple other guys roll through the VFL as well, but usually they get a taste of VFL action in the second half of mm. the year, these top draft prospects. Um, he's gone straight to the Carlton VFL side and looked didn't look out of place at all. He won the first... Um, midfield clearance of the of the day he started in the midfield he, he, he rolled forward and, and kicked a goal and he, he looked pretty good well there were AFL listed players uh, that he's playing against in that AFL Academy match as well uh, tune into that uh, for a little bit of time against the, the Port Reserves I think yes, it was yep. and he you're right looking out of place not him absolutely not <laughs> like I said off the top I saw him in the change rooms uh, on Friday night for St Kilda Port Adelaide and I've just never seen a 17 year old look so like a well built 25 year old it's just unreal. So, so clearly, he's probably the most developed, I guess, of this this draft crop. You could say there are quite a few really ready-made players, which is interesting. Um, and we were talking about it just before that it's really interesting how quickly these guys are developing and coming into the AFL system, ready to play football. Um, but he's definitely the most ready-made, and he was he would have been a top three draft pick this time uh, last year, uh, towards the end of the year, uh, and. So far this year, he's de- delivered on those expectations because he's taken his game from you know playing forward, playing a little bit behind the ball, where he looked a bit like Tom Stewart reading the ball and really aggressive in the air, um, to now being a pure centre-bounce midfielder that can mm. still kick goals and impact the way he was as a forward. Is he the sort of player that you'd be, if you were a club that was in the race for a bottom four spot, you'd be looking at moving picks around to, to move up to get him? Yeah, I don't think three first-rounders would get the job done. Um, this year, he's generational. Probably, they say he's a bit head and shoulders above the rest right now, and the closest to him, I'm sure we'll get into him. But Nick Watson and Ashton Moyer, I, I don't think you could build a footy club around. Mm-hmm. Harley Reid's probably that that focal piece you could. 
To your point, though, and it's something I've noticed over the last probably you know five to seven years, that players are coming in now, these kids coming in, and they they hit the ground running. They're ready to go. They they can run. They've got the body for it. They don't look out of place in their first and second year. I mean, look, we spoke about Nick Dacos every week on this podcast. He's just he's only played, what, 35 games, and he's favorite to win the Brownlow medal. So it's like these guys are coming in, and they look as good as any player that's that's currently in the league. I feel like that's a trend that's only really just started. And to your point, I think there are others in the draft sphere that come in and aren't as highly touted as a Dacos or a Horn Francis or a Harley Reed, like a Max Michelani, who's mm-hmm. come in and is one of the best lockdown small defenders in the competition already. He was, you know, around a pick 16, pick 20. Lockie Cowan has played every game bar last week for the Blues. Um, he was pick 26 odd. It's it's through the draft there are these ready-made players mm-hmm. now ready to go because of their fitness levels, because of their strength and endurance. And um, yeah, The AFL pathways are set up these days to be quite involved quite early in players' careers. So I think it's not a surprise to see that, you know, when the AFL sort of like pathway types identify you at, you know, maybe 12, 13, as early as, maybe even earlier, by the time you have had sort of four years under the tutelage of some of these guys and some of these pathway programs, you are ready-made and, and ready to go. Uh, another player I saw in the rooms that was with Harley Reid was Zane Dersma. Uh, he seems to feature quite highly on a lot of these draft boards as well. Where does he sort of uh, rank for you at the moment? Yeah, the idea of Zandersma is really exciting. He's brother of Xavier, obviously, um, and he's this forward-half midfielder. I think there's a trend throughout the this draft where these forward-half midfielders that can hit the scoreboard but are really clean below their, their knees and, and can um, you know, rack up 25, 30 touches is uh, quite prevalent. And he's another one of them that can change a game and kicks really unique goals. He, he snaps them over his shoulder almost. It's... Um, pretty impressive to watch him to play for Eastern Rangers and uh, sorry the Gippsland Power um, and uh, he'll be suiting up for Vic Country who has a very solid squad this year as well. Uh, you mentioned a couple of names before uh, Nick Watson affectionately known as the Wizard. <laughs> what what sort of why why does he have that nickname attached to him? He's he's one of the best goal kickers I've seen probably since Isaac Rankin coming through the draft. He kicks them out of absolutely nowhere. He reads packs and he crumbs like a traditional small forward. But this year, he's gone through the midfield. He's averaging 26 touches and he's he's looked really composed and, and fast in there. He's brought a different element to um, that midfield mix. And I think it's going to be an interesting conversation. He might go pick two and probably before Harley Reid announced himself last year, he was in the pick one conversation. Mm. But... Matty, he's only 170 centimetres. It's 170? Yes, he's 170 flat. He's your height, one of the shortest. <laughs> he's rude. one of the shortest players in the draft, okay. and it's it's a testament to how good he is because he's probably the pound for pound best player in the draft. But wow, maybe I'm clubs. Think, are, how many how many players have we seen that have come through AFL ranks that have been be under 100? That's Caleb Daniel. Yeah, well, yeah, or Brent Daniels, maybe. Yeah. There's a few that are there, but the fact that they are quite. Well, that that uh, Watson is touted to go quite high would be, I think, quite unusual for someone it who's is. quite so diminutive. It's really unique, but he plays a game that he tackles hard. He's really aggressive in the contest, and the ability to, you know, being that short almost helps him in a lot of situations because he ducks under a lot of tackles. <laughs> <laughs> he can draw a lot of high frees, and I know that's not something we love, but um, it is a really good hallmark of a small well, forward to be able to get yeah, yeah. Well, to, to Cody Waiten and get those kinds of free kicks in in the forward fifty, and he makes the most of them. Absolutely. Is there a player that perhaps might not be sort of top five, top ten on all the draft boards at the moment that you've sort of seen and really liked, liked what you've seen in the early part of the season and think that they will start to, to jump as the season goes on? If, if you want an early prediction, I think this kid 
is as likely as anyone in the AFL to captain the inaugural Tasmanian footy side. This is a massive call. Colby McKercher. Now, he's a Tasmanian. Um, he's a midfielder. Sounds like a Tasmanian name. <laughs> Does it? <laughs> I'm not getting I, <laughs> I won't get into that one. Uh, hello to everyone in I'm not Tasmania coming along for that one, Matty. <laughs> um, but yeah, he's, he's a midfielder, really fast, um, quick on his feet, and... Uh, it just uses the ball superbly through the middle of the ground. He's he's one touch, and he went head to head with the pioneers and Harley Reid um, three or four weeks ago in the talent league for for the Tassie Devils, and he did not look out of place at all. He had thirty one touches, the most on the ground. He kicked a goal, um, and he he made Harley Reid look a little bit slow sometimes with his dash out of packs because he's got this real burst in his first two or three steps. Mm, interesting. Well, see, he would be a, what let's say twenty four, twenty five, if and when a Tasmanian team comes in. Uh, that's one to watch. Don't mind that at all. Yeah, uh, you mentioned cool. another name off the top, Ashton Moir. Ashton Moir, Moir yes. Moir. Yeah, he's uh, the best kickoff left and right foot I've ever seen come through the talent pathways. He um, is absolutely mercurial in the forward half, and he's one of the funnest ones to watch because he's 186-ish centimetres, so he um, has this really springy leap, and he can play as a kind of a third tall, but when the ball hits the ground, he just goes to work. and. Uh, left, right, left foot, right foot. He 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 runs in on set shots and decides which which one to kick. I was going to say you don't. There's well, there's, firstly, there's not that many players in the league right now that are great on both feet. Like probably the one that that sticks out still side bottom is, has yeah, always been good. really good on both feet. But to to be a sort of a what you said potentially a third key forward, third tall, like a big man being able to do that. That mm. seems quite unusual. It is. It's really interesting to watch him do it and. To your point, I think um, a lot of coaches these days probably agree that you don't have to be, you know, a steel side bottom on both feet, but you just have to be able to get out of trouble with those ones um, mm. if you're on your left side and you're hemmed in. But uh, he he just you know chooses which one to do. It's, it does not matter to him. Uh, familiar name on the list that I've been sort of having a look at uh, is Caddy. We've heard that name before. Yes. Now Nate Caddy is related to former. Let's Josh. go through them. Uh, Cat Tiger and son Josh <laughs> is he not? Yeah, he is. He's the nephew of. Um, and he's he's kind of got the same physique. He's a really barrel-chested uh, young man, but he plays more of a traditional key forward role, and uh, he's a really interesting one for me. I probably have him a bit higher on my boards than a few others because I love his competitiveness in the contest, not just in the air, aerially. He's good up there, but when the ball hits the ground, he applies pressure, and that's kind of what you need in today's game. If, if your key forwards are applying pressure at ground level, um, and we've seen a little bit with Sam Draper in the forward half for Essendon. He's been able to kind of apply pressure when the ball hits the ground as well as being a key forward target. Um, then you're you're going to help your side, you know, so much as a you know defending with 18 players on the ground. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there you go. There's another one to watch out for. Any, I might throw, be throwing you under the bus with this question, but any father-son prospects that we should be keeping an eye out for this year or not? No, none in the top 20 to 30. Um, Interesting. It's, it's going to be It's a funny how they one. come in waves, yeah. the father-son. <laughs> Do they? Well, next year we'll see Le- <laughs> Levi Ashcroft will challenge for the number one pick. Yep. And there are uh, early whispers year? that he might even be better than Will. Yes. Well, Here we go. Here we go. Uh, this, start this. what I'm reading on the grapevine. Uh, it's, um, he, he had 33 touches and kicked two goals two weeks ago for the Sandy Dragons, and he's a bottom major. Yeah, I'll, okay. I'll leave that with you. That, that says a lot. Uh, we do have a mid-season draft coming up as well. Uh, so there's mm. been... Well, one of the best players on the weekend for the Hawks, John Newcomb, came out of that a couple of years ago. So there are you are able to find sort of these hidden gems in these kind of situations. One players who might be looked over a bit early, then develop a bit more in their body or develop their skills a bit more. Is there anything we should be keeping an eye out for in the next couple of months as that approaches? Yeah, well, it's within this month now in May, Maddie. Really? Um, we are Wednesday, in May already. We have May thirty first. Yeah. Keep up. Yep. So, yeah, for about four weeks away. Um, there's not as many standouts in the talent league 
this year. I think you can kind of pin that down on a couple reasons. But for one, I think coming out of COVID, these players don't get left in the cracks anymore. Um, mm. There's possibly a bit more exposure um, after that that period. And uh, that's a good point. You're not you're not going to get a Jai Newcomb or a Jai Cully coming mm. out of this draft. I, I think I think Cully's going to be really good as well. Um, but I think there's going to be more of a target on on mature prospects. Uh, the the one that's the the most notable is going to be Sam Naismith, who yep. obviously did four very or five ACLs. Very mature. Um, did four or five ACLs with Sydney. They let him go, and he's been playing really well for Port Melbourne in the VFL. Interesting. Uh, it's funny how like you're right. I think the, the COVID thing makes a lot of sense, but then like the the equilibrium is going to swing back to like mature key position players, mature bodies, mature mm. ruckmen. And you know there will be there will be even if you say the talent may not be there as as we've seen in previous seasons. There's still going to be two or three or four that come in and and have some sort of an impact and are playing. That's just the reality that we've seen. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, anything else you want to leave us with uh, before we let you go? Um, maybe the best name that could be picked up in the mid-season draft, an overager, uh, Ziggy Toledo-Glassman. Now, he's... Some strong he's, names, names in his podcast. Yeah. <laughs> he, he missed last year just. He, he was pretty close, but he's kind of an undersized key forward, but he's kicking a bag of goals. Long on the weekend, he kicked six. Two weeks ago, sorry, he kicked six. Um, and he looks very good for the Dandenong Stingray. So keep an eye on him. He might be picked up in the mid-season draft. There's another name floating around in my head that's quite a quite a mouthful. Colton Tholstrup. Yes, he's he's a bit of a cult hero already. He yep. plays for Subiaco over in the West. Uh, he's got the speed dealers. He's got the, the long, <laughs> curly mullet. Uh, he's a very interesting character when you meet him as well. So, Can you be a cult hero if you don't have sort of long, flowing hair? I feel like they go hand in hand, right? Or, or uh, yeah. It helps. It, yeah. Does help. <laughs> it does help you stand out, I guess. Or you could have uh, the Chad Warner, the two-minute noodles on top of the head. Yeah. <laughs> Your mate. Anyway. Uh, Jasper, it's been wonderful to have you on the podcast, mate. Uh, we appreciate what you're doing for the website. As we said earlier, you can read all of his stuff, uh, espn.com.au forward slash AFL. We'll get you on the podcast again. Yeah. Uh, this has been fun. So Let's make it happen. We'll do that a bit later in the year, maybe as the uh, well, after the mid-season draft and then obviously with uh, the, the draft stuff and, and player movement in October and November. Thanks for joining us. Perfect. Cheers, boys. We're getting into red time on this podcast, proudly sponsored by Subway. Jake, is the hype justified or is it hyperbole? The grand final curse is real. Oh, it is. How can you say it isn't? That's justified, hundred percent justified. We we talk about it every year. We look at you know the we come in, we do our predictions, and we think could they possibly miss out the grand finals from last year? And obviously, in this case, it's Sydney. And you say no, there's just no way it's going to happen. And then, sure enough, you get five, six, seven rounds in, and you think they starting to feel more likely to miss out than make it. And this has been an ongoing trend, and Christian will tell you the numbers. I mean, have you got it right there, what, what we actually have seen in the last 25 years? Yeah, so again, going back to 95, there's been 13 teams to uh, lose a grand final by at least 40 points and no final wins. Uh, so no one's won a finals game the year after. That's just And a lot of them haven't actually made finals as well. Yeah, exactly. Only one, two, five of the five of those... Sorry, there's 12, so I was counting Sydney as the 13th one this year. So there's 12. So five of the 12 have made finals, but none of them have won a finals game. So that is staggering. But then you kind of ask yourself, why? Why does this happen? Is it just an, a total quirk? Or is there something... And I tend to think this has to be the case. Is there something in mentally getting so close to winning it all, falling short, and then having to go through the grind of a preseason and start again. That must be a factor, because I don't just subscribe to the fact that this is a coincidence. It's a statistical anomaly, you would 
Good I, I, I'm sort of glad that I don't have to come up with the reason why. <laughs> I can just sort of throw you the numbers and say these are the numbers. Enjoy. But I, I can't figure out why either. I, I, again, I'm sort of leaning a little bit with Matt. It's a statistical anomaly. But how can it be so, so far down? Especially you know, the 13th when you look, like I said, especially every year you look at it and you say, they're only going to get better. They've still got all this talent. They're, you know, in Sydney's case last year, the, the day of the grand final that night, I wrote a, a piece on how they have set themselves up for the future with the young talent they've got. And then you look at their, their list and you're scratching your head thinking, where what's happened to this team? So, I mean, the, the, the last three teams that happened to was the 2017 Adelaide team. You just thought, well, they're just starting something. You know, they were on yeah. top of the ladder that year. It was their first year of really being, you thought, got another three or four years of this. They didn't get back in there. Um, Giants. Giants in 2019. Again, very, very young team when they played Richmond in that grand final. Haven't been there since. And the Bulldogs even in 2021 yeah. were sort of saying, well, they they were so much younger and than lot, Melbourne. And, and a lot of people picked the Bulldogs the following year to win win it all. And it, they just keep falling short. It's, it's incredible. Uh, Christian, Geelong will finish top four. Uh, I think that's justified. They're, they're back. Um, as I said, I think they're going to tighten, tighten up their defence as the season goes on. But I think to get themselves back, they've just really opened the floodgates, scored, got their percentage back. Um, and that's probably the next thing I'm looking for. Second half of the season, if they get the de- defence down pat like they had it last year, they'll be as good as they were. Jake, Gil McLaughlin's greatest legacy piece is how he navigated COVID. Oh, I think we've got a hat-trick of justifieds here. Uh, I really do. I mean, I think he'll probably be remembered. So I guess there's two parts of it. He'll probably be remembered more for uh, pioneering the AFLW um, and growing women's football in Australia. Um, But I think when I think of Gil and COVID and how it all happened and how he just had to make all these decisions on the fly and there was no blueprint for it. um, And you look back and I think the the part of it that you you look at and you think, gee, what a success is the fact that we don't look back on that season, that 2020 season as an asterisk year. They do in the NBA, they do in a lot of other sports, but not in the AFL. And it it was the total, there was equality, there was fairness, it was done brilliantly the way it was navigated around travel bans and restrictions and everything. Uh, And I think everyone in football, whether it's players, coaches, umpires, fans, media... You know, must must look at him and thank his leadership for that time. And I think that was an incredible effort to get through. I'm not saying he's the only one that could have done it, but he did, and he had to, and he didn't have a choice. And it all happened, and you couldn't plan for it. Very good. Uh, footy tips. Get your tips in. Friday night footy. Carlton Brisbane. Good game. Big game. Yeah. You gonna go? No. <laughs> I reckon um, I'll be there. I'm unfortunately busy uh, that evening. Uh, but no, I will be tipping on the footy tips app because yeah, my, my tips have recovered somewhat have, yeah. after a poor start. Yeah, I think a lot of people had a poor start. Yeah. Um, How did your, your son go, by the way? <laughs> See, he tipped North Melbourne. Oh, so oh, that's mate. what I'm saying. You, you, you finish with nine and then the next week you tip North Melbourne against Melbourne. Like It's all a fluke. <laughs> Very good. Uh, if you want to listen to Ron Connolly, he's on the Footyology podcast yep. out every Wednesday you can catch us every Tuesday, as I said. We're at Footy Tips on Twitter if you want to ask us any questions or you have any comments or you want to give us any feedback. Uh, we'll always take your questions and we will read them out uh, as well if, yeah, you, if, if you've got something decent for us. Especially if there's a, some champion questions too, champion data. Absolutely. Uh, guys, thanks for joining me. Thanks to Jasper as well for uh, jumping in as a special guest. And yep. to everyone at home, we will speak to you in the next episode. Listen to all the latest episodes by subscribing to the ESPN Footy Pod wherever you get your podcasts.